Welcome to the Preacher Podcast, where we believe that preaching should be biblical. And for it to be biblical, it must be Christ-centered. We talk to preachers about, well, preaching. Whether you have preached one sermon or 1,000, we're here to serve those who want to preach better. I'm your host, Alan Stanley. Welcome again to another episode of the Preach It podcast, where it's our aim to serve those who want to preach better. This year actually marks 20 years since I left Dallas Seminary, where today's guest is from. But before we hear from him, um, upon leaving Dallas, one of the things I did was take up a role as co-pastor in a church in Australia, where the term culturally sensitive got used a lot in this particular church. It was a culturally sensitive church. Now, at the time, I really struggled with this concept and, in fact, ended up leaving after two years because I didn't think I was a a good fit for the church, which is really another way of saying I wasn't that keen on being culturally sensitive. In my mind, we were conceding too much to culture. Well, 20 years on, a lot has changed. I've changed, fortunately, but our world has also changed massively. Our culture or cultures have changed, and it can be hard as a pastor, as a preacher, to navigate these cultural changes, which begs a question, to what extent should our preaching be influenced by culture? Not everyone agrees on the answer to this question. But to help us with it is someone who has taught and written extensively on this subject, Daryl Bock. Daryl's been on the podcast before. He's senior research professor and teaches New Testament at Dallas Seminary, where he's been for, must be nearly 40 years, if not 40 years. But the reason I have him on today is because he's also executive director of cultural engagement at the Hendricks Center there. Daryl, it's good to have you on. Good to be on with you, Alan. Great to reconnect. I was wondering if you could just begin by perhaps telling us why you have become so interested in the last couple of decades or more on the issue of cultural engagement. Because if the Bible and what it teaches doesn't connect to life, then the Bible doesn't have life. Um, it's, uh, the Bible is designed to equip us to live in the world where God has us well and in a way that represents him and that represents, um, his, uh, concerns and his character. And so if that doesn't translate into where people are, if that, if that application never touches the ground, if, um, if we aren't so heavenly minded that we are earthly good, then we haven't actually applied what the Bible is after. So, um, so the cultural engagement part of it, I view this as a natural extension of the years that were invested in my own career in understanding Jesus and the Gospels, and as the natural outgrowth of where that should take you as a theologian. You wrote a book in 2020 um, entitled Cultural Intelligence. Tell us about what, what's the heart of that book. Two pieces to that book. One is to rec- is to say that the moment we say culture in the singular, we have created a misunderstanding that actually our world is made up of cultures, and they rub against each other like plate tectonics. 
And if you understand anything about geography, you know, and plate tectonics, the continents sit on plates and they rub against each other as they hit and they build up pressure and you build up enough pressure, you get an earthquake. And so, um, so the image that I have is cultures rub against each other. And we were used to a world that was more monolithic in the way we thought about culture. And we've now shifted to a world in which it's clear uh, there are many people living on many different plates uh, and rubbing against each other in a pretty um, challenging kind of way. So how do we, how do we engage uh, with this variety well? And, and that's, that's uh, spurred my interest. And then, and then the second part of it is, um, at least in the United States, we have taken an approach about four decades now that has referred to and talked about this engagement as a culture war. Uh, and I actually think the culture war approach to this is, uh, is biblically off-center. It isn't that there isn't a battle. There is. But the battle is a spiritual battle. It requires spiritual resources. And we've fought it less with spiritual resources and more with ideological resources. And that uh, gets in the way of, of the testimony of the church. And as a result, we're losing young people, uh, which is not healthy. Uh, and so this is an attempt to realign uh, where we ought to be biblically, uh, turn us into people who are a little better listeners, have a little more sympathy for where we came from when God saved us, and in the process develop um, the term that you opened with, a little bit of cultural sensitivity. Mm -hmm. um, helping people to understand that when the church engages in evangelism, it's working with people who sometimes don't have the categories they need to appreciate what it is that we're saying to them. And part of our responsibility is to help them think through maybe the creation of some of those categories. Mm. You mentioned evangelism. Um, but what we are going to discuss today is preaching. Now, obviously, preaching, you know, uh, engages in evangelism and is, is sometimes sometimes directly um, towards unbelievers. But you know, often we're talking about preaching in church on Sunday to uh, the majority, which is believers. What is does this apply uh, to preaching? Uh, to Absolutely, believers, because for part of the role of a preacher is to equip the people in the pew to be the kind of Christian God calls them to be in the world. The commission that the church has is to go into the world and make disciples. It's not to stay in the church and be content with where you are. And so if I'm doing a good job of preaching, I'm keeping an eye on the discipleship aspect of where people ought to be as they grow in the Lord. But in that growth of the Lord, if that growth in the Lord isn't equipping them to carry out the commission that God called us to carry out, which is to approach people outside the church with the invitation of what new life offers, then we aren't doing the kind of preaching and teaching that we ought to be doing. So evangelism is never very far from what the task of the church is supposed to be. I don't view it as a preacher as preaching to people thinking that the room is full of unbelievers, but I do preach with an eye of thinking through how do I equip the people who uh, are part of the family of God and who share my commitments to Christ and prepare them to interact with the people that they're running into from, from Monday through Saturday. Hmm. So would it be fair to say that you're not only equipping, but you're also modeling for them how to interact with the uh, well, absolutely. World. If I if if I can't show what I'm talking about, then I haven't I haven't taught. Uh, mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's just uh, 
it's almost that simple um, and that hard. Um, mm. So, um, yeah. So you're trying to model. You're trying to you're trying to help people think about um, where the other person is coming from. And and what I often say is, you're trying to discover where the other person is coming from. I say one of the most important things in doing in our engagement with those outside the church and the culture is to get a spiritual GPS reading on them. Um, usually they are interested in, in the big questions of life to some degree or another, even if they've shoved them down pretty deep, um, because they may not be aware of how entirely how to process them. But if you will do a lot of listening and asking questions, let a person tell their personal story and initially put your doctrinal meter on mute. I didn't say turn it off, but mute it. Uh, and let them tell their story, get to know them, get to know what motivates them, what drives them, etc. And if you do that in a way that communicates a level of respect as you're listening, they may open up to you. And they, you also set yourself up to get the reciprocal treatment when it's your turn to speak. And so, um, so I think that's just a better way into the space and in getting to know people and in, in interacting with them and, and really uh, developing an ability to care about them personally. Actually, I, I, th- I feel like I really need to share this. Um, one of the things that I have started to do since January is work part-time as an orderly in the hospital, um, which supplements other things I do. Um, a couple of months ago, I was transporting a lady in a bed. She was an elderly lady from one part of the hospital to another. And um, I don't need to tell all the details, but she just before I took her off, she said, um, praise God, hallelujah, and then followed by not that I believe in God. So, you know, what do I do? What do I say? So I, so, um, I stood next to her. I was just getting her ready to, to travel. I stood next to her and I said, oh, you don't believe in God? And she said, no, I haven't since I was six years old. So I said, oh, tell me about it. And, and that was, that was um, the whole discussion traveling, not a discussion. She simply told me her story. As we traveled across the hospital, she was Polish and she had, uh, for two years, she had um, been in the concentration camp in Germany. Mm. Um, she lost her father. She mm-hmm. moved to New Zealand um, at a young age. And, you know, by the end of it, she she was kind of this, you know, she was a little bit hard, had an edge to her at the beginning. But by the end of it, she uh, thanked me for listening to her story. She was in tears. And, you know, I thought, um, you know, how how I could have wrecked that whole thing by right at the beginning say, Oh, you don't believe in God. I do. Mm-hmm. Now that that conversation that could have all gone quite south. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's kind of an example of what you're saying. Well, as I like to say to people, particularly as the church as the culture becomes more and more uh, or less Judeo-Christianized, at least in the West and the country's influenced by the West. Um uh, people, in some cases, don't have the categories to process even what the Bible is saying. Uh, mm. They're just, there's just, they have, they don't have, they don't have the categories. So what you are doing is you're doing two things at once. On the one hand, you'll eventually be trying to communicate, you know, what some of those categories are. But the second is the way in which you do it is going to open up someone to be open and hearing what it is that you're saying as you're trying to help them think through 
Uh, have you thought about it this way? That kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. and if you do it with a kind of invitation and contemplative uh, way of engagement, um, to engage a conversation, that kind of thing, with an awareness of where the person's coming from, I think you're actually at an advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I say, you're setting up a dynamic that, that actually allows you to reply in kind down the road. Uh, if you do it well and you do it right, because I guarantee you, even though you probably didn't have a long-term relationship with this person who you took across the hospital, had, were you ever to see her again mm-hmm. and you were to say, remember that conversation that we had? I'd like to hear more about kind of where you are, et cetera. And you had the opportunity over coffee to actually mm-hmm. develop what what surfaced. Um, you've already built somewhat of a bridge with her because her response was, thank you, I appreciate the fact that you cared enough to listen. Hmm. Hmm. Let's say say a preacher or pastor comes to you and says, I want to be more culturally intelligent in my preaching. Please help me. Now, my guess is that you'll probably perhaps want to spend some time listening to some of his sermons, perhaps look at his manuscripts to help evaluate where he's at. But after that, excuse me, after that, how would you help him? What would you work through? The questions that I would be likely to ask would ask would would be have something go something like this: Are you more interested in being right, or are you more interested in how you're relating to people who disagree with you? Hmm. Um, that would be where I would start. And 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 the goal here is to make the point that if you look at the fruit of the spirit. Or if you look at the Great Commandment, or if you look at even a doctrinal passage as important as Ephesians 2, what comes out is the importance of relationships alongside what you believe. It isn't just what you believe, it's how you display it. It's how you engage it, what comes with it. And so even like Ephesians 2 is a great example. You know, it's got the Protestant creed right there in the middle. Um, uh, you know, salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And everyone, uh, anyone on a memory program knows 2, 8, and 9. But they, they, sometimes the principle in the Bible is keep reading. And uh, 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the goal of God saving us isn't just to save us and have us avoid someplace that has a bad fate tied to it. It's actually to make us into a certain kind of person. And then if you ask, what's the first good work that gets mentioned that God prepared beforehand? Well, keep reading. That's 2.11 to 22. That is Jew and Gentile being brought together in Christ. Estranged people, groups, not just individuals, pulled together into a new community that enables them to relate to one another in a completely different way than the way they were relating to one another when they were part of the world. Um, and that's the, that's the goal. That's, why, that's one aspect of why the gospel happens. So this idea that I've got the gospel, which is the content of faith and belief and getting saved and avoiding hell and having my sins forgiven, all of which is true. But the, if you ask, where is that supposed to direct us? That directs us to places like Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, Jew and Gentile being one in Christ, that group reconciliation that takes place. Reconciliation is supposed to be a product of that. It takes us to the great commandment, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are all relational. Every bit of it. Mm. The fruit of the Spirit is relational. 
the um, the armor of God in Ephesians six, the great cultural war passage, is relational. Okay, it's what I believe and how I live it out. That's what the armor is. It's not ideology. It's 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 lived out theology that that says I'm living in a different way. It's come off of a section in which Paul has made the point: you're to live this way, not the way the world lives. And so, so if it isn't expressed in concrete relational action, the fruit of the spirit is all relational. If if it isn't expressed in concrete relational means, what I call the ethical triangle, my vertical relationship with God is supposed to impact my horizontal relationship with others. Then, um, then you're 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 not in the ethical loop of the scripture. You're not in the ethical center of what the scripture is doing. It strikes me as really interesting that Jesus never once says, by your doctrine or by your theology, you will know them. It's, it's in these categories that you're talking about, the ethical categories, the love categories, um, the fruit of the spirit kind of categories. That's, the doctrine should frame my behavior, but the doctrine's not the end, it's a means. And so, um, so it isn't the doctrine isn't important. It's the doctrine. It, doctrine is supposed to direct. First of all, it's supposed to direct me to a humility. Mm. Uh, I, I, I'm I'm supposed to understand that I am who I am not because of anything that I've earned, but because of the grace of God, and that God got my attention when my back was turned to Him. And I like to say to people, when you're engaging with people outside the church and the culture, you should never forget where you came from, mm-hmm. uh, that, that God was drawing Himself to you when your back was turned to Him. So you're in no different position when you're interacting with someone outside the faith than you were when God got your attention. Um, and that that's just a good starting place. And then if you go from there, there's a sympathy that, that emerges. A second reality is, is that we know that the spiritual forces of which the spiritual battle is a part, and I'm back in Ephesians 6 again, our battle's not against flesh and blood, which means it's not, human beings are not the enemy, okay? They're actually the goal. And, um, and what gets in the way are the spiritual forces that stand opposed to them that draw people into a way of seeing the world that actually is self-destructive. And, it, and the way they work is one, that there's a kind of deception that goes on, and part of that deception is, is that people don't even realize those forces exist and acknowledge them. Hmm. And so if I, as a believer, understand that those forces exist and acknowledge them and recognize that the only way to fight them is spiritually in the product of the life that I display that's counter to what that represents, uh, then I'm well on the way of being in a position to have cultural intelligence and to do it with the humility that it actually requires. Mm. I um, so, so in a nutshell, you know, you just kind of, I guess, bring all that together. How would you describe a culturally intelligent preacher? Culturally intelligent pe- preacher is trying to hear the cry of lost souls for what they are looking for, and then trying to connect them to the way the gospel addresses that lostness. Most people in our world are actually very dislocated, if you analyze it. They're trying to figure out who they are, where they fit, what they're about, etc. That's a dislocation. 
And the Bible gives the opportunity for pe- teachers and preachers to locate people, locate a person's honor rooted in the in image of God, locate a person's purpose. We were created in God's image, male and female, to cooperatively work together so that the creation would be a harmonious place, not a disjunctive place. And and if we can see that the restoration that Christ brings gives us the capability of doing that and bringing that, and that the church is supposed to be a place where we're supposed to see that in particular, uh, then we create the right kinds of communities and the right kind of people who can relate to people who are seeking to be located or may even have gotten so distracted from being located they've just given up um, to give them an alternative possibility to consider. And it's fair to say that that's true whether we're speaking about unbelievers or believers. We, we are, we're doing the same thing. Exactly. Because in some ways, in some ways, dislocation happens even for believers. Well, believers understand that they're dislocated in the Mm. sense of here I am in the kingdom of God in a world that pushes against me. I'm under pressure and under tension as a believer if I'm living faithfully as a believer. You know, I understand that's that's the space I'm going to occupy. But I'm also here, understand, I'm an exile, I'm a representative, I'm an ambassador, Hmm. uh, and so I'm representing something that is not present around me. That's part of what I understand. And then the church is a refuge for that. The church Hmm. is supposed to be a place that nurtures that distinctiveness and helps you function well in it and help you understand what's also going on around you. At least that's what it's designed to be. And if I do that, if, if those parts are done well, if I'm in a healthy community, if I'm in a community that's re- reinforcing those things, and I'm also committed to the idea that he who is in me is greater than he who's in the world. Mm. He who is in us is greater than the one who's in the world. I don't operate out of fear, but I operate out of a confidence of what it is that my faith has given to me. I'm in a position to be culturally intelligent. Mm. Now, down here in New Zealand, we get Stephen Colbert on our TV. He's a talk show host, as you know, and comedian in America. And uh, back in February, I think it was, he was asked a question um, by one of his guests on his faith and how it inter and and how you know that kind of interacted with his. Um, comedy, and I'd just like to play a clip from there, and then uh, we'll have a little bit of a discussion about it. Okay. Is there any, you know, does your faith in your comedy ever overlap? And does one ever win out? I think ultimately, us all being mortal, the faith will win out at the end. (laughs) But I certainly hope when I get to heaven, Jesus has a sense of humor. But I will say this, I will say this, uh, someone was asking me earlier about what I, this is, this relates to faith because my faith is involved with, I'm, I'm a Christian and a Catholic and that's re- re- always connected to the idea of um, love and sacrifice being somehow related and giving yourself to other people and that death is not defeat. If you, if you can see where I'm getting at there. Someone was asking me earlier, what movie did I really enjoy this year? And I said, well, I really like Belfast, which is Kenneth Branagh's story of his childhood. And one of the reasons I love it is that I'm Irish and uh, Irish-American, and it's such an Irish movie. Um, and I think this is also a Catholic thing because it's, it's funny and it's sad, and it's funny about being sad. 
In the same way, that sadness is like a little bit of an emotional death, but not a defeat if you can find a way to laugh about it. Because that laughter keeps you from having fear of it. And fear is the thing that keeps you from turning to evil devices to save you from the sadness. As Robert Hayden said, we must not be frightened or cajoled into accepting evil as our deliverance from evil. We must keep struggling to maintain our humanity, though monsters of abstraction threaten and police us. So if there's some relationship between my faith and my comedy, it's that no matter what happens, you are never defeated. You must understand and see this in the light of eternity and find some way to love and laugh with each other. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that speaking about the product as love and sacrifice is kind of this relational landing point. You know, what he didn't talk about and what some people might point out is, well, he didn't talk about how he gets there and what the gospel is before you get there. But remember that part of what we've been trying to talk about here in the conversation that we've had is, is that um, on the one hand, there is this offer an invitation to come into this new life, which requires what Christ has done on our behalf and our recognition that we can't save ourselves, mm -hmm. that only God can save us, and that we need to be saved on the terms that he offers, which is, I'm going to, I'm going to pay the debt that you can't pay for yourself, and I'm willing to accept that. But once I've made that move, what is it that God is making me into? Okay, that's Ephesians 2.10. 8 and 9 is the, you know, the exchange and the recognition of the need for why we need Christ. But 10 is what God wants to do with it. We are God's workmanship. I would, if I wanted to paraphrase, we are God's craft, craftsmanship. Mm. He's shaped us. He's shaped us with this new life, this new creation that he gives us in Christ. And he's created us for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Works don't save us, but they certainly are a goal of why God saves us. God is, faith and works go together. James said that as well, looking back on the impact of faith. If I really trust God for what he's given me in his spirit and what the spirit is doing in my life, then there's going to be a product. And that product is going to do two things. It's going to turn my attention away from being self-focused to being focused on God and others. That's a great commandment. And that's going to end up be creating some sacrifice because I'm not going to be the center of my world anymore. God and other people are going to be the center of my world. And when I do that, I'm relating to people on a completely different basis than the way most people conduct their lives. Mm. That is ultimately countercultural, but it's also totally Christian in terms of, uh, of the way I live my life and the ethical calling that God has of us to, to think about, go into the world and make disciples. I mean, it isn't like going into the world is easy for a believer. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you better understand that the model of the way following me works is it's like the cross. <laughs> it's not easy to go to the cross. It's not easy to bear your cross every day, as Jesus said, etc. So that's the sacrifice part. And the love part is that, uh, I want to model what God did. God so loved the world that he gave. You know how the rest of the verse goes. Yeah. He gave his son. Yeah. Whoever believed in him should not perish and have eternal life. So there's this outward direction of sacrifice and love that we model. And when we do that, the Sermon on the Plain says, just like God brings the rain to unbelievers and cares for them by the way he's given the creation, you model yourself as a son or daughter of God when you do that.
Mm. I want to um, come to um, a response from Tim Keller soon on the clip we just heard. My own thoughts on it was there are some very profound things in there that he said if you if you listen and. You know, if that's if we're thinking of workmanship, and we th- and and if we're thinking, oh, that's that's what my faith means to me. There's some there's some very profound stuff in there um, that the gospel is in terms of yes, he did not. You you might say he didn't articulate the gospel, but he is articulating what the gospel means to him. And, and he's articulating that, and, the goal whole, of the gospel. He's the articulating the goal yeah. of the gospel. He's exactly. not talking about how you get there. He was assuming that by his faith, I think, exactly. by the articulation of his faith. Yeah. But he's asking, where's the gospel designed to take me as a – actually, was, where's the gospel designed to take me as a comedian? Yeah. Okay. That's actually what he was discussing. Yeah. And he said something in there that was pretty important. He says, when we react out of fear – and we react in a kind of eye-for-eye eye and tooth-for-tooth tooth way. We repay evil with evil. Mm. We actually undercut and, and go in the exact opposite direction of how God responds to evil. God responded to evil with love and sacrifice. Mm. God re- responded to evil with a reach-out of a hand to people who weren't interested in having a hand reach out to them and said, hey, will you recognize what I'm, what I'm doing here as a way of getting getting uh, the attention. Now, that doesn't mean that people aren't accountable to God. They will be accountable to God one day, and they will be responsible for the decisions they make. But that's God's business. That's not my business as a believer, okay? My business as a believer is to be faithful in trying to replicate the care, character, love, grace, and kindness of God in the midst of that accountability that changes the accountability that a person may have because they're drawn to the love of God. Mm-hmm. And And... That's what that's what I think our task as a church is supposed to be. Tim Keller, uh, this is what he said, um, responding to that clip. He said, "This is a brilliant example of how to be a Christian in the public square. Notice the witness, but in a form that culture can handle." And the interesting thing is, well, perhaps you know, I mean, it's not surprising really, but he got a lot of flack. He got some supporters, but he got a lot of flat from that comment because the language wasn't there. Um, words like repent weren't there. There wasn't a gospel articulation, so to speak. And I, I think really probably what's happening is that people were confusing just what you've been saying. He was talking about what the gospel has accomplished in his life rather than giving somebody, you know, um, a straight-off evangelistic uh, message, so to speak. He was actually, in my mind, doing pre-evangelism. Yeah. He, w- he was opening up people to the idea of, here's why faith matters, and here's what faith can do for you, without taking him through the parts of the journey of faith that would be necessary as the follow-up. Okay, but that's because he's speaking to an audience. Remember, I started off by saying that one of the challenges of the world today is creating categories that people don't have that they need in order to process what it is that the church is saying to people. Um, if I speak prematurely before someone is has formulated or considered the necessary requirements to appreciate what 
what the Bible is or what God is doing when he reveals himself, et cetera. I mean, imagine speaking to someone who doubts that God exists or your Polish woman who said, I walked away from God when I was six years old and saying, no, God is actually the center of the universe. He, he's he's in the hub of everything that's happening. The the very figure that you've marginalized or rejected mm. is you think he's not in play. He's actually in play big time. Okay, how do you how do you how do you bridge that chasm? Okay, I can insist simply mm. that I'm right. Okay, and just kind of be in your face about it, or I can attempt to show by the counter way that I live that there's a different way of living mm. and that is uh, that is attractive and winsome and and um, yes it's challenging at spots but it's challenging in a way that never forgets to try and say to the person the reason I'm challenging you here is because I care about you the reason I'm challenging you is not to pull you down it's to lift you up you use the word attractive it's exactly the word that I thought of um, when I listen to Colbert, Colbert because, you you know, if you listen to that and you hear what he's saying, you can't help but say, boy, that's attractive. I wish that was true of my life, that nothing can defeat me. I think that's true, although I don't wonder if people even got that far. I think what I say is, is that what, he, what it is, is it's not just attractive, it's also inviting. Mm, yeah, uh, he's inviting them to think about life in a way that's different than generally speaking the way the world reacts, and to consider where that might come from, where that mm. difference might come from. So I always tell people that that you're that that you're you're actually on a journey in which you're building a bridge. Remember, you're building a bridge to categories that people oftentimes don't have, but they have to have in order to appreciate what's going on. I mean, if I'm going to share the story of the life of Jesus, and I'm going to talk about a concept like resurrection, mm. okay, <laughs> which is kind of important to Christianity, <laughs> uh, and, and at one, they don't know if God exists. Two, they don't know if he reveals himself. Three, they have this thing that death is pretty pretty debilitating, you know, uh, you know, and that, and so you got a lot of hurdles that you're, that you're having to overcome. How do, how do you make the case that there's hope for hope? Mm. And, uh, and that, and that the, there is such a thing as a creator God, there is an order to the world there. We are designed for certain kinds of relationships, not just with one another, but with the one who created the world, that we aren't dislocated, that we aren't an accident, that we aren't uh, a mere statistic, however you want to put it, that there is sense out of what God does with us. And if we would appreciate that, we would care for each other a little better, that kind of thing, and then show that care. Uh, as a result, if we aren't doing those things, then we're we're struggling. We're struggling to reflect what Jesus is asking for in the Sermon on the Mountain and the Sermon on the Plain, and that's that's kind of his ethical platform. Mm. So what you're really saying is, I mean, when we think of preaching, we think of language, we think of speaking, we think of words, but the, um, you know, I'm hearing you say the way in which we communicate is important. We need to. Um, you know, unpack these things, but we, but the manner in which we do it is also important. There are two things that are key here. One is how I say what I say, and two, the tone with which I say it. And so I tell people, theological language is a foreign language to a lot of people, okay? 
I can. I might as well be. T I t I've taught Greek for forty years. I might as well be teaching people in in the world Greek. When I th think about some of the terms that we use on a regular basis, and you know, uh, uh, et cetera. Now, what I want to do is I want to tra I, I want to become a translator when I'm when I'm interacting with people. I want to take the concepts that are biblical and put them in terms that the person can understand. Because remember, I'm creating categories for people that they may not have. Um, and so I'm trying to, I'm trying to help them get there, or at least consider another way of thinking by adding categories to their, to the way they think about the world. And so the only way I can do that that I know of is to translate that language, is to become a good translator. A preacher should be a good translator of theology in a way that someone who doesn't have a theological degree can understand what it is that's being said, and. Um, that takes work because we hide behind our special language sometimes. Um, and and so I, I often say to students, how many of you ever had this experience? You've gone to hear someone preach. This is a bad example to use on a preaching podcast. But you've gone to see hear someone preach, and they're defining all the words mm. that they are using, but you still have no clue what they're talking about. Mm. Okay? Because they've kept it in that, in that, in that twilight theological zone in which they actually, they haven't taken the concepts, there's the word and the definition, and then there's the referent, what it's referring to, or the dynamics that it's referring to, or the relationships in life that it's referring to, that you can and should give everyday language to, to describe what's going on, and then to build the bridge back to the technical terminology that you're using. And so this kind of, uh, how can I say this, cultural dialogue that needs to take place is something that the preacher should give themselves to. And the best way to do that is, is find a conversation partner of someone who's not very theologically trained mm. and interact with them and ask them as you're talking about the things that you want to raise, is this even clear? Is this making sense to you? Or what, what is it that I'm, what's not communicating? And see if they can help you. They can help you in your translation work. Yeah, everybody preparing a sermon should go out to should aim to go out to coffee once or twice uh, during their preparation time just to kind of run. I think you know this kind of stuff past someone. Or run it by a kid. Yeah, you know? yeah. run it by a young person. Yeah, uh, and, and see, uh, is this making any sense to you? Do you can I? Is this now the hard part? There is is that the young person may not have the life experience to plug in at the applicational level mm -hmm. that you'll be concerned about with your audience. But my point is simply that if you do not engage, if I, I used to have this line in the classes, you may have heard it when you were sitting in class. If I if I'm simply going to repeat the words of the text, then I'll let me just read the text. Thank you very much, and don't mm -hmm. waste my time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the job of an expositor is to explain. Mm. I need to explain the text. I'm not repeating the text. I wonder if part of the problem here is that we have a lot of cliches and slogans and technical jargon in Christianity. But quite often, these thing, the these phrases and and words and and the language, they haven't actually, they actually haven't become real for us. In term, what I'm trying to say is, they is they have a meaning to us, but 
it's at a definition level, if that, but we don't we actually haven't connected it with life um with with being on the ground, how it plays out, and therefore the we struggle to actually understand the concept because we 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 kind of can't connect it to life even though we even though they're big concepts and we know they're really important. Uh, here's here's another challenge. I'm mean, not disagreeing with you, but I'm going to try and articulate why I think that happens. Mm-hmm. And that is, I tell people that there are two ways to preach the Bible. One is from the Bible to life, and the other is from life back to the Bible. The point that I'm making when I talk about life back to the Bible is that life back to the Bible is always life in a fallen world. It's always a, a, a world related to dysfunction. It's not the ideal that the Bible presents. And so there are obstacles in the way. And, and, and we are slow to come to grips with the obstacles that are in the way in a way that helps us to get back to where the Bible is trying to take us and why we need to go that route. And so I think what happens to our cliches is we construct an ideal world, which is not a world most people live in. Mm. And in the ideal world that we construct for people and have them aim at, we don't give them a bridge from where their life is to how to get there. And so as a result, there's a disconnect. And so I tell people we need to, as preachers, learn how to switch hit. We need to learn how to be able to go from the Bible to life and from life back to the Bible. And then here's the hard part of this. I say that most people who are reading their Bibles are not going from the Bible to life. They're going from life back to the Bible. Mm. They're reading the Bible in light of where God has them in life. And they're asking, how does the Bible speak to where I am? And if we can't show them how to go from life back to the Bible, then we aren't connecting with them in the way they're reading the Bible. And, it, and, and that way of reading the Bible is not wrong, is the point. The Bible actually speaks to life as it is, but we've lost the ability to switch hit. And so mm. sometimes we create an ideal world about where things ought to be and why we're not there rather than thinking about where things are and why why those things are happening and break that down as a way of getting back to what it is that the Bible is offering. And so I think that's sometimes where the disconnect happens and why the cliches sound wonderful, but when you actually go to plug them in, people are asking, so how does that actually plug in? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, the Pharisees seem to me to be a fascinating case study when you think about them. They're, they're conservative they study the scriptures diligently. They're on the same page pretty much of the time, probably with Jesus theologically. Uh, they thought of themselves as God's gatekeepers. They certainly believed that they were in touch with the truth, and yet they couldn't be further from the truth. Um, what do you think? And, and of course, you know, no one wants to see themselves as a Pharisee, but surely there is a lot for us to learn from this group in terms of being a culturally intelligent preacher. Here's what I say about the Pharisees, that it's just as wrong to make the Bible do too much as to make the Bible make do too little. Mm. The problem of the liberal is they make the Bible do too little. The problem of the Pharisee is, and this would be the arch conservative, if you mm. want to think of it that way, is they make the Bible do too much. And in the process, it, for them, it's more important to be right than to be relational. And, um, and and I actually think that the relational dimension is really, if you listen to the testimony of most people who've come to Christ who did not grow up in a Christian home, that testimony will have an element of some Christian who who 
by the way they lived helped them to create categories they didn't previously have and open them up to thinking about what the gospel was really about. And almost all of those testimonies have that kind of an element in them somewhere, which tells you how important relational evangelism is and how important relating to people well is. And again, this isn't because people aren't challenging people with the way they've lived. That's not it at all. But they've challenged them in such a way that the sense was, I know you care about me and I know your life is different, so I'm curious about what makes you tick. That's the second time you've said it's more important um, to be, you know, it's more important to be relational than it is to be right. I can just imagine there's going to be some um, pushback on that because, um, you know, many of us, we go to seminary or Bible college, um, we learn theology, we learn exegesis, uh, we come out and, you know, in some ways, what we've learned is about we've we've learned how to be right we've learned what is right and so we you know we desperately want to communicate that and yet uh what you're saying is that as a preacher and you know thinking again here of preaching that actually being relational is more important I think the way I would say it is, is that being re- that if I'm right and I'm relationally wrong, I'm still wrong. Mm. That's what I'm saying. Mm. I'm not saying that the rightness doesn't matter. Mm. The rightness helps to frame, at least if you're, if you're really right, okay? Mm. If you're really right, you will land in the relational space that the Bible is designed to take you. Yeah, the two are inseparable. Okay, all right. But if you're but if you're only if you're only right at an ideational level and you're not thinking about the relation if you're not thinking about the fruit of the spirit, if you're not thinking about the virtues in Colossians three where it says you're so heavenly minded you are earthly good, if you're not thinking about the lived out armor of God in Ephesians six, if you're not thinking about the great commandment and the way that applies, if you're not thinking about the countercultural way that Jesus says to relate in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, you're not right. Yeah. Okay. Right. And, and you're not right in a holistic kind of way. So what I'm trying to do is is to say it's not just what you think that's important or whether you're right on a particular point of doctrine, but how you think about that and how you relate that to a world is as important as being right on the point. And so uh, so if I'm if I'm conceptually right but relationally wrong, okay, I've missed it. Mm-hmm. Um, in many cases, in some cases, the Pharisees were theologically right, but they were relationally wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, uh, and that, and that's part of making the Bible do too much or making the Bible do too little. I'm not sure which side that you're, you're making the Bible do a lot at the conceptual level, but you're underestimating what it should be doing at the relational level. Um, and that's, that, that's just a problem. Uh, what what stands out, you know, what made the early church so exceptional in an environment where everybody was pushing against them is to say they live differently. They mm. don't process things the way we do, and they aren't. They weren't doing it in an assistant kind of way. They were just living out who they were supposed to be as Christians. Mm. Someone said to me recently that too many people today are obsessed with tone. Now, you've already mentioned tone, and um, you've spoken a lot in the past about tone. Um, And I think this comment comes from 
um, the this thought that oh this is we we are conceding to culture we're being influenced by this woke mentality within culture but actually what I'm hearing you say is no 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 that we're not being influenced by culture at all when we talk about tone we're influenced by what the Bible actually says yeah that's exactly what I'm saying and I'm also saying this that that. Uh, that just because I'm saying I need to be sensitive doesn't mean that I'm giving up on my convictions. And that's why I answered the doctrine relational question the way that I did. I'm not saying abandon what you believe. Mm. Okay, Anyone who's hearing that is not hearing what I'm saying. Mm. I'm saying stand up for what you believe. But the way to do it is to live it out in a way that shows the character and grace of God. When Jesus calls us to love our enemies, he's not conceding to culture. Okay. He's, he is actually living counterculturally. Mm, yeah. And to do that and to reflect the character of God while you're doing that, which is what that passage says. You know, God so loved the world that he gave. Okay. The first thing God does is extend a hand and issue an invitation. The gospel is about challenge and invitation simultaneously. In 2 Corinthians, when it's talking about being a new creation and being um, having this ministry of reconciliation and engaging the world as an ambassador for Christ, goes on to say, we plead with you be reconciled to Christ, okay? The tone of that is significant, okay? And, and that's biblical tone, okay? Mm-hmm. That's not me imposing a cultural tone. That is biblical tone saying that I'm always extending out a hand to remind people that where I'm trying to take them with the gospel is, again, to a place that's not trying to push them down, even though I'm going to talk about sin and repentance. It's trying to lift them up because it's getting access to, to um, capabilities that God will give out of his grace that without, without which I cannot live in a way that's pleasing to God. We. Um... We have, I'm thinking we have uh, two sets of texts in the Bible, if I can think of it like that. We have texts like 1 Peter 3.17 and Colossians 4, 5 and 6, which speak about um, gentleness and respect and graciousness. and Always. Um, yeah. Always. I tell people, always is a technical term. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you have to remember what always is. Always means always. It doesn't mean sometimes or when I feel like it. Well, the question I want to ask is: This isn't these texts are in the context of interacting with unbelievers. Absolutely. Okay. Um, then you have other texts like Matthew twenty-three. You know, Jesus uh, calling the Pharisees hypocrites and blind, and so forth. We have the Old Testament prophets. Um, we have Paul and Galatians calling uh, his readers foolish. And so there is this, um, I, I can just imagine, you know, somebody saying that, well, in the context of unbelievers, yes, you know, I can see what you're saying, building bridges and so on and so forth. But again, getting back to Sunday morning preacher, uh, preaching, um, then, you know, there's this time for being, you know, having this edge, having this, you know, harshness, um, and you kind of that gentleness and respectfulness goes out the window kind of thing. You, you understand where I'm coming from? Yeah. And uh, here's what I would say. You know, when Jesus talks about how he, how, the prophets function for Israel, people who should have known better, okay? I always tell people, 
The people that Jesus is harshest with are the people who should have known better. They were claiming a connection to God, but their behavior wasn't reflecting it. So he was harsh on them. Okay, Pharisees claimed to be totally representing God, but they were misrepresenting him. So they got harshness from Jesus. Mm. But he also said this about the when prophets, when he came into the city of Jerusalem and he said, how I longed to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. Okay? That, that edge that's being presented is not presented as a, just an edge. Mm. It is coming out of a place of love. Mm. It is coming out of a place of concern. If, if I'm only communicating sternness, okay, mm. then I'm falling short of what that requires. And what you see with Jesus is this openness. He would sit down and talk with anybody. He would only push back on the persons who thought they didn't need what he was saying. Mm. And, um, and not only people who didn't, need, didn't think they needed what he was saying, but people who thought they already had it all together. And so, you know, when he's pushing back, and, and he'll say things like, he'll say things about the Pharisees that are interesting. Don't, what they're teaching, you ought to respond to, but don't do it in the way that they're doing it. Hmm. Okay, that is, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> um, you, know, um, you know, you ought to tithe, but don't neglect justice. Hmm. You know, that kind of thing. So. So even even in the pushback, there's this awareness of of um, God pushes back hard where there is arrogance. Hmm. It's and, really inter- it's really interesting because when Jesus comes on the scene, it's not the sinners and the prostitutes and the tax collectors that he gets angry with. No, no, for those people, he's trying to say uh, that that God is opening up a way for you. To find yourself, because mm. he this. refers them as a lost. You mm. know, mm. they're dislocated. I'm back to this idea of being dislocated. I, I tell people we need to preach the gospel from Genesis one, not and and then incorporate Genesis three, um, yeah. rather than starting in Genesis three. Yeah, we are good. made in the image of God. We have dignity. We are made for relationship with God, and we are made to be cooperating with one another so that the creation hums. You've got this statement in your book that you use more than once. Um, people are not the enemy. They are the goal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I really like that. Is it possible for um, us as preachers to fall into the trap of seeing people as the enemy? rather than the goal and if so what difference will that make to our preaching i'm back i'm back to the illustration i used earlier when someone disagrees with me is my idea i need to crush them and crush the ideas that they're saying or do i see them as part uh, engaged in a spiritual deception that they may not even recognize in a need of a rescue so i tell people if you need a military metaphor don't think about a battalion crushing and defeating another battalion Think about being special, being special ops, and your goal is to rescue someone who's trapped and kidnapped. Only the trick is they don't even realize they're in danger, they're trapped or kidnapped. Mm. So they don't even sense the problem that they have, okay, which makes it a double challenge. Mm. 
But it makes all the difference in the world if I see that person as someone who needs to be crushed because they're the enemy or someone who is the goal who the goal of which is for me to get in a position where I can invite them and move them towards what it is that God is offering them. Mm. Mm. Um, I, you know, I kind of wrapping up here, but um, I wonder if we need to say something a bit about because I could I can imagine that some people I mean the the real worry I think again is this conceding to culture and you know if we think about culture today we've you know we we've got so many things going on sexuality uh, comes to mind and the you know the kind of wokeness again of the culture in which we live in and you know I think many perhaps are just thinking, well, I, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to see that I'm, I don't want to seem like I'm accommodating or, or, or being tolerant. And so I just, you know, again, want to stand on the truth and be faithful to the word. How much should we be paying? What I'm trying to say is how much should we be paying attention to culture? How much should we be a listener of culture? And how much should culture actually um, make its way into our preaching so that we are neither buying into it, but neither are we kind of disconnecting from it. If you actually listen carefully to people who are sensitive in the culture, they are as aware that the culture is lost as many Christians are. Mm. They are as aware that we are as dysfunctional as Christians sense the culture is. Um, now, the solution to that for some people is to say, let everybody do their own thing, and as long as it doesn't impinge on someone else, we're okay. Okay, that, 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 that laissez-faire approach doesn't work. But a person is not capitulating to culture if they're trying, on the one hand, to be empathetic on where someone is as a result of living in a fallen world. And at the same time, they're saying, but there is a, another way. And that other way involves coming to God and recognizing that you need what you can't supply yourself. You're never capitulating culture when you're coming at someone from that space. Mm. Um, and, and so, so the idea that because my tone is has an element of empathy, and I mean, wokeness is a great example. Um, you know, we're, we've we, we've we've disputed the idea of being awake, uh, but. Um, and there, there is a wokeness to be concerned about. But for a lot of people, what wokeness means is I am sensitive to the fact that certain minorities live with an experience that is different from my own and that the culture works hard against them. Mm. If that's what being woke means, then by all means, I'd rather be awake than asleep. Mm. Um, uh, because God says in the Old Testament to care about justice. In fact, he says in numerous passages, and this is also in the New Testament, if you do not care about justice, I do not care about your worship. Mm, yeah. And our worship is pretty important to us. It's pretty high up there. Well, if justice is up there in kind of the same playing field, so much so that our, 
our lack of concern about justice means that God doesn't, I don't care how many rams you bring. Or if you can bring a thousand rams to try and take care of this, but if you don't care about justice, I don't care about your sacrifice. Jesus, I mean, God says that in the Old Testament passage. Yeah, yeah. Is that in Isaiah 58? He says as much in, his, in Micah 6. Okay, if that's how much God cares about justice, then Christians ought to care about justice, and they ought to be very wary of the person who comes along and says, don't care about justice, that's liberalism, or that's social gospel, or whatever. Mm, no, mm. it isn't. It's the heart of reconciliation that God is about. Yeah, it's the heart of the prophets, and it gets carried yeah. right over into Jesus' yeah. teaching. Yeah, it's great. That's been great, Daryl. Thank you. Uh, one more thing. Any resources that you would suggest for preachers who uh, want to delve into this topic more and, you know, just learn to become perhaps more culturally intelligent in their preaching? Well, what we've tried to do on the Table podcast is to work through an array of issues that uh, that touch on the variety of areas that we're talking about. We've done over 500 episodes. We have over 350 hours of material, and we have tried to do it with this with this set of values in place. Uh, and we've tried also, in some cases, to contrast it to the way some Christians handle the space, so that people can see what it is that we're talking about. Um, and uh, and and then that'll introduce you to an array of resources and, and, and people hmm. who are uh, wrestling with this and, and trying to come to grips with it. You know, one of the challenges that we do have is, is that our culture has moved very, very quickly. But the other reality is, is that we're actually in a place very little different than where first, the first century was. I, I tell people, if you want to know how to act in the future, go back to the future and look and see how the first century church lived in the Greco-Roman cultural world, which is just as anti-Christian and, and anti-moral in some ways as um as many parts of our own culture are. I mean, you read the latter part of Romans 1, and I go, I'm sorry, Paul is watching our our mm -hmm. evening news. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he understands the world that we live in. He understands the world that the gospel walks into and speaks into. And he's asking to do it with a sensitivity that understands that the only way that we correct what is so misaligned in the world is to get realigned to the living God. Mm. Well, Daryl, I thank you um, for this. It's been really helpful. Um, just appreciate it very much. Glad to do it. Thanks for listening to The Preacher Podcast. If you've got a question or topic you'd like answered on a podcast, then please email alan at preachit.nz. If you'd like to know more about Preachit and the training we offer, go to www.preachit.nz or check out our Facebook page. This podcast was produced and edited by Ruffian Beats with music by Samuel James. Catch you next time on the Preacher Podcast where we want to serve those who want to preach better.